Hi, you're about to listen to an episode of Borough Talks, a podcast from Borough Market. A very, very warm welcome to you. We're going to be bringing you a series of conversations around food and food culture with some inspiring guests and leading voices from the food industry. I'm your host, Angela Clutton. I really hope you enjoy listening to this episode of Borough Talks. And if you do, you can subscribe for more from us. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Borough Talks, Borough Markets podcast. Um, I'm Angela, and I'm sitting here today with lovely Ravni Gill, who I've launched in calling Rav, even though we've only just met five minutes ago, but she's so friendly and lovely. It's Rav from now on. Poster chef, campaigner, TV presenter, kind of powerhouse, really. And we're going to kind of get through all of that in the next half hour, 40 minutes or so, and talk about her latest book, Sugar, I Love You. When was that out, Rav? It was out in October. (sighs) Gorgeous, gorgeous yeah, books. We you. definitely want to talk about that because I think it's one of those cookbooks that exudes you. you, know, you thank you. The personality that comes across in Bake Off and other things that you do, it really, it's, it just feels like, do you feel that about the book? I really do, actually. I think the first book I wrote, Pastry Chef's Guide, was very much a manual. It was a bit more serious. It was very theory-based uh-huh. because the publishers took a punt on me. And Sugar, I Love You is the whole, like, this is me, personality you know, and people kind of get it a bit more. Yeah, and it feels that way. And one thing that we're going to go, we're going to talk about a load of things and then come back to Sugar, I Love You. But one thing I love about it, as well as the recipes, is you talk so gorgeously about your friends. And it's oh. really like, you f- no, but it feels as the reader, the cook, that not only are you with us in the kitchen, but your mates are too. And that's that's really lovely. It really you know, gives us such a warmth Thank you. to it. So, gorge. But that you just said that your publishers kind of took a punt on you. Let's talk about that. How did this, how did this get to be what you do? It's really I love telling people this story because I feel like it can inspire lots of other people. But when I was pastry chefing at a place called Llewellyn's in Hernhill, I got asked, I used to carry around this big fat orange folder with all my recipes in it from all the years of working in kitchens. And the chefs would always say, I want your folder, I want your folder. And people would text me or message me from jobs I'd been in saying, I need that recipe from that folder of yours. And when I was at Llewellyn's... How big is this folder? It's, it's chunky. Okay. Like I haven't... I'll tell you about it in a minute, but it's chunky. (laughs) And um, I was at Llewellyn's and I was putting my own spin on so many things. It was so wonderful. And we had these regular customers that would come in, Joy and Helen. And when I left Llewellyn's, they sent me an email saying, have you ever thought about writing a book? They were two lovely women, but I didn't think much like of them in terms of the publishing world. I didn't know anything about it. And I sent them a proposal that I'd written. It was just an A4 like Word document, really, really messy emailed it to them didn't think anything of it and then I did a bread event with Countertalk it was my first ever event and the day after I get an email from someone at Pavilion saying I was at your bread event yesterday and I have your proposal sitting in my inbox because Joy and Helen sent it to me can we have a chat and that's how it happened and who are Joy and Helen like they work in publishing well I, I still to this day don't fully understand oh, wow. but I did say thanks to them in the back of my book so we all need to join Helen <laughs> yeah. love that just lovely customers who I think had a good connection in the publishing world um, and liked my food that's so nice but let's go let's go back more how was it you know, obviously there's so many ways of getting into food what was your why pastry how did that how did that come to be your thing I never intended it to be but growing up I had a big sweet tooth and I wasn't very good at baking. I was actually quite bad at it. 
very school, reassuring for everybody. <laughs> at school, I got told, like, this is not for you. Don't do it as a GCSE. Really? So I didn't. Yeah. It wasn't good. And then I went off to uni to do a psychology degree. But the whole time I was doing my degree, I was doing charity bake sales. And I was having everyone around for dinner. My housemates used to get annoyed with me because there'd always be a new table of guests in the <laughs> evening that I'd picked up on the way to uni and back. Like, oh, come round, come round. And uh, it just kind of, I realized that was my love, was cooking and baking. And then I left university, well, finished it, did my degree to please my parents, and then launched straight into going to be a chef. Wow. It's amazing. And it just shows, doesn't it, that sometimes at school, the things which you know, teachers can be very quick to make decisions, can't they, yeah. about what's right or what's yeah. wrong. And it doesn't always, you know, kind yeah. of work out as being the thing. Um, the psychology degree interests me because I wonder how useful you find that still, you know, because well, I think, do you find it useful? I think part of me used to think that I'd thrown it away. But actually, what I realized is the degree in psychology helped me deal with people. Yeah. In kitchens, you're in this melting pot of so many different personalities. And I always feel like there's always something happening, like one situation. And I feel like it helped me like engage with people, keep friends in the industry, but also be that one in the kitchen where everyone would come and tell me all of their problems. Like I write in Sugar I Love You about it being a confessional yeah. because I would get all the secrets and this and that. And it was quite nice actually talking to a lot of people and listening. Yeah. Actually, I learned a lot about listening. And I think psychology degree helped me set up counter talk. Yeah. Um you've gorgeously taken me exactly where I wanted to go next, <laughs> which is counter talk. Um tell us what counter talk is. So CounterTalk is a platform for people in the hospitality industry to connect with one another and to also empower people with tools and resources to help them be better. When it first started, it was an Instagram page to kind of get people talking a bit more. When my, did, and when was that? When did it start? I think it was like four or five years ago okay. now. And it was I was working full time as a chef and I set up an Instagram page to kind of get people talking more because I feel like it can be quite cliquey. Mm-hmm. You move in your cliques and you don't really interact with anyone else. And the goal was to highlight all these different amazing people in the industry by shouting about them on this platform and then get them to all interact and do events and that. And then it turned into a job platform. So I started advertising jobs with companies that would treat people properly because I realized that if you leave your, uh, I don't know, if you go straight from school into a kitchen job that you hate, you get treated badly, that might put you off for life. But really, it's an incredible industry to work in. And I've had some terrible jobs, but I've also had some amazing ones. So Counter Talk was all about highlighting the good ones so that people would stay in there and then promoting healthy work practice so employers could come to us for resources if they needed it on like how to communicate, how to lead. And yeah, we do a lot of that. Do you feel that in the time since feeling the need to set up Counter Talk and we're sitting here in February 22, she says, trying to hope yeah. it is February 22. <laughs> <laughs> do you feel that in that time, that four years, whatever it is, that I, that the culture has changed and are there, are there more places offering work environments that you were hoping for that sentence doesn't make sense yeah. but you know you know where I'm headed yeah when I mean when I was in kitchens so many things happened that should never have happened and nobody really spoke about it do you it. mean in terms of the way people treat it <laughs> yeah okay and there's lots of grey areas I always call them grey areas and my thing is when I first started it I think people didn't really care I've still got some cult followers from the beginning who are amazing. But now it's 
you know, more powerful than ever because I think a lot of employers have suddenly gone, oh my goodness, we actually really need to sort ourselves out because staffing is a huge issue. And I've always been banging on about staff retention. Yeah. People think it's quite boring of me, but I'm always like, staff retention is key yeah. to well, a flourishing now. food yeah. business because your staff are your everything. If you treat them well, you'll have like reliability, consistency, the doors will stay open, customers will keep returning. It's really your seed of growth in a company. And I think not treating people properly just from a human level is silly. So, <laughs> it is know. not smart. It's, it's not, true. It's not good. And when you started, did you feel you were getting positive reactions from employers as well as employees? The right type of employers were like, yep, yeah, get it immediately. Yeah. And But a lot of employees were oh my goodness, we need this. They I were bet. really my champions. And now it's gone a, a lot more even where employ, employees will tell their employers, have you seen this resource on Counterstalk? And we get employers reaching out to us saying, can you recommend someone in this or can you help yeah. with that? And that is like incredible. Yeah, Because a quick look at newspapers over the last six months or so will enable all our readers to know there's been such a hospitality staffing crisis. Big time. Big time, which has been caused by several things, I guess. Want to talk us you know, through your perspective on what's letting you know, got us to this point? I think there's obviously Brexit. Yeah. And I think there are so many reasons as to why the staffing situation is going on. <laughs> before COVID, actually, the year before, I held a conference with Countertalk that was all about the staffing crisis. This is why crisis. I said powerhouse at the top. These, <laughs> this is all the powerhouse stuff I was meaning. Yeah. Carry on, carry on. I held this big event about the staffing crisis. I said it's coming. This was before COVID, before you know Brexit. And even then, the issue back then was um, it not being taught as a viable career path in schools. One of the most beautiful things about working in, the fo in food, in my opinion, is you can just come in from nowhere with no qualifications, no background. And if you get into the right place, you'll be welcomed, you'll be taught, you'll learn loads, you'll meet the right people. And that is so beautiful. Like what like you can't get that in many careers, right? You yeah. can it's pretty much an even yeah. playing field. And my whole thing was we need to start getting kids in schools who want to do that, opening their eyes to all the possibilities. You could go into a kitchen, maybe doing a little bit here and then want to go and work in the marketing side and, you know, or do a bit of food styling or photography, you know, all of this stuff really weaves into each other and it's about who you meet or you could do a pop-up that then leads to a residency that then leads to a restaurant and it's such a beautiful industry. So back then it was all about schools and getting people in and now I think it's more about a lot of people left the industry yeah. because obviously they felt they didn't feel secure during COVID. I think a lot of problems in the hospitality industry surfaced yeah. during this time and people were like, why am I working for so little money? Yeah, so I think it hours. did make people take, take, take a step back yeah. and kind of go, hang on, I'm kind of killing myself doing these double yeah. shifts and things and the pay isn't you know really that great. And then you know, being delivery drivers are all kinds of other things that people did yeah. during the lockdowns. And, and I think a lot of employers' biggest mistake during that time was not looking after their staff immediately. Yeah. One of the issues that we saw at CounterTalk, well, that we get so many messages, were from employers who immediately, when COVID was announced, just dropped all their staff. And now they're scrambling and now they look for staff. And I'm always like, you should have treated them properly back then or just waited. And then, you know, furlough did come in and there were other, you know, Roots, yeah. And I think the employers who still checked in on all their staff and I know employers who had WhatsApp groups just like checking in on each other. All of that stuff is so human and it's so important. And it's not a transactional thing, just having an employee. And I think those employers did very well. Yeah. And a lot of people obviously left and went back home. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and how do you feel about the rest of 22 shaping up hospitality? Wise. I mean, the pay has increased significantly yep. for a lot of positions because employers realise that they need those positions. 
I find that when I'm going to certain places to eat, I see the same staff there all the time mm. <laughs> because, you know, I don't know how long that's going to last, mm. but there are not a lot of staff mm. around. I think I saw a stat yesterday that was, was it 400,000 positions that are open? Right, yes, something like that. Yeah. Something ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think before COVID, there was a new restaurant opening nearly every day. Every day, Like, you know, there was something yeah. happening every day. And yeah. I thought, when is that going to burst? Yeah. I think it has in some ways. Like you walk into the city in certain areas, like even Wardour Street on Soho, so many places are closed. Yeah, I mean, no, you know, many more places now are not doing lunch every day. Yeah. Some people are doing like Wednesday through the Monday weekend. Monday lunch, impossible. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I think it's changing the market and the landscape, yeah. but I don't know how long that's going to last in terms of, like sustainability from an employer point of view, because yeah. if you raise your wages, do you raise your costs on the menu? And then yeah, the rents, just about to, you know, just about to say that to be honest, I think we as people you know who are fortunate enough to occasionally go out and eat have a responsibility as well to kind of think about what we're we paying for our food and where is that money going and how much is going to the staff and what's the tip situation yeah. and all of that. And I think. I think we, and I mean everyone listening to this podcast as well, can all do a little bit better as well about thinking about you know, where our food, not just where our food comes from in the way that, you know, that borough markets obviously so you know, so much priority about where our food comes from, but also about that whole kind of chain of it, which means, you know, clearly about how the food is yeah. produced, but then also how it ends up on your table. That's yeah. all. And all food costs are going up. and Big time. You know, everyone's all about sustainability. And I think now people are talk, thinking about sustainability within people as well. The two need to sort of, you can't have a business that's all about sustainability in food and not look after your staff. So, yeah. you know. Yeah. So clearly we could carry on talking about Cancer Talk. <laughs> yeah. But the thing is, that sounds like that sounds like a full-time job, Ralph. It and feels yet, like a full-time job. <laughs> and yet, it uh, sounds like a full-time job and you do so much, so much else. The Sugar I Love You, we talked about at the beginning and come back to it, came out in October. So I'm guessing you were writing this right through yes. the early parts of the pandemic. Yes. When you were also very much big time in sort of your Cancer Talk and all that was happening there. Yeah. So you're, it's, it's like seriously impressive. Um your first book, as you said at the top, was um, a bit more technical um, and uh, not a teaching book. But what you say, what you, you talk us through, what the difference between the two the two books? Well, the first book was very much. I feel like I had to get it out in the world because it was a theory based book, yeah. and the whole idea that's was a that, better way of saying yes it. that it would it can replace cookery school because I think cookery school can be very expensive, and I wanted the book to be A five. It can fit in your bag. I love a cookery book on the train, like opening yeah. it and reading it like it's a novel, and I didn't want many pictures because some of my favorite old school books in terms of like pastry and cooking have no pictures in them at all, and I quite like that. Nice. I I have found that. People these days don't necessarily like Tell me about a, it. a limited amount of pictures, yeah. but I think that's quite beautiful. The we people do, um, who get it, get it. We do a cookbook club at Borough Market, yeah. which I the absolute joy posting. Yeah. And this comes up so many times about photography in books. And as a food writer myself, it's something which I think about you know, mm. a lot. And it does, it absolutely does come through that people, and I get it, you want a beautiful book and you want almost every recipe to kind of have a photo with yeah. it. It's just it's just where we are. But I completely agree that some of the older books that don't, there is something very beautiful about those. I really think so. Too. And it's about your own interpretation. And often these pictures are great, but they're so styled and, you know, I don't know. I think there's a lot of power in reading and yeah. just going through it and going yeah. through it in your head and thinking, really concentrating on the formulas of a recipe. Yeah. So that's really what it was about. And... I wanted to get it out as a baseline before I released another book. So Sugar I Love You is way more playful and fun. But if you want to understand more about pastry, for example, there's like a smoked almond and quince tart in Sugar I Love You. 
go back to Pastry Chef's Guide and read up all okay. about pastry and then come back. Yeah. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's great. And I think you're saying about your perfection and styling. And there was loads of just incredible shots in Sugar, I Love You. But there's not meant too many that are kind of perfect. And I love that about it as well. They're, they're kind of part-eaten or you're in there or you know, family or friends are in there. And it's what you're saying about the joy kind of bouncing off the pages. It isn't just in the recipes, but I think it's very much in the photography yeah. as well. And in the way the whole book is put together, Thanks. I think, that you I have recipes think, that flow over yeah. pages. and It's food, isn't it? Yeah. And I used to, when I first started working in pastry and desserts, I wanted to be the, that chef that did really flawless, beautiful things that looked really unobtainable. It was really where I was going. And then when I landed at St. John, I was like, oh my goodness, I've been doing it wrong all this time. And it was all about connecting. And my food started tasting a lot better. I connected more with what it was that I was using. It was all about seasonality. And genuinely, I carry that through with everything I do now. And I think flavor over everything else is the most important thing. And getting a beautiful dessert that you can eat the whole thing instead of it looking absolutely beautiful and only being able to have like one bite because it's so rich or it's so creamy. I'm all about like eating it. (laughs) (laughs) And again, that really comes through. And uh, we share a love of deep frying. Great. Love the <laughs> We deep can fryer. definitely bond over deep frying, if nothing else. Uh, and that's, yeah, again, there's, there's, there's so much in the book. Um, Sugar, I Love You is a great title. Did the publishers... <laughs> were the publishers loving it from the start, the title? Well, I initially proposed that my first book would be called Sugar, I Love okay. You. Because I was... I just had this name in my head, but... I think they said no because no one knew who I was. And I think it would be quite a weird angle as a pastry book, especially pushing a narrative of loving sugar when a lot of people think that it's not actually very good. But this book, because it's so personality-based and it's all about kind of my life and my family and my friends, I thought it was quite joyful to call it Sugar I Love You because I really do. And I'm not saying that you should go and eat loads and loads and loads of sugar. I'm all about you can only enjoy it in balance and moderation. That's really my message. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. And also, I think there's an understanding of what sugar is and the role it plays generally in food. And yeah, I think it is is a real celebration. It gets a bad rap, but I... It does. You know, I eat something sweet every day and it brings me a lot of joy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly right. I mean, I absolutely love this book. Um, I have brought with me a pristine copy to get signed for my um, eight-year-old niece. Um, because she completely adores you. But my one at home is like a bit more splattered. Good. And this one it is an absolutely gorgeous <laughs> book. And my um, eight-year-old niece absolutely adores you because of Junior Bake Off. I thought you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> We've got to go there. We've got to go there. Um, for anyone who has regrettably not had the experience of seeing any Junior Bake Off, tell us about it. It is so much fun. And I never would have thought that I would enjoy doing something like that. And I almost got thrust into it. I just said yes to this opportunity that I, I got approached through Instagram in a, on a DM uh, during lockdown. Um, and I ignored it for quite a while and then eventually spoke to this person. Why did you ignore it? Because I just thought it was one of those things, you know, you get so many messages okay. that are fake or okay. yeah, they sure. never go anywhere. And I, I don't do well being led on in general so I just don't entertain things and so I I thought it was one of those they said it was for a Channel 4 show and did I want to have a chat and I thought absolutely not yeah and then I one day after getting like a Facebook message a LinkedIn message an email I I said okay what what is this and they said oh it's to be a judge on Junior Bake Off and then I remember turning to my mum and saying oh not gonna go and do that and she was basically I just shut up and go my mum is really (laughs) brutal she has no sympathy (laughs) 
you know she was like just shut up and go and um yeah I went for the audition and kind of got it how many series I've done two you've done two yeah and you are so um compassionate and kind and supportive but I think the biggest thing is you don't talk down to the kids I think it'd be really easy to be patronising going, oh, well done, Lola. You did yeah. a lovely thing. Lola. Because, oh, I know, I mean, rooting for Lola. <laughs> Little gutted. Um, because, you know, she's so gorgeous and like big smile and all the rest of it. But you don't do that at all. You you are kind and compassionate and supportive. But you also take, because they're taking what they do seriously and you take it seriously. And I think that's enormously respectful. Is that hard? Thanks. I was really nervous at the beginning because I thought I've I've not been around many kids in general. I was wondering about that. If you like grow up with like loads of okay, not at all. So I was a bit terrified. And when I first, I remember calling my friend the first day, going, "Oh my goodness, like I don't know how I'm going to do this." She said, "Just imagine you're talking to Nyla and Santisa and Alara, who are my um, one of my closest friends' um, nieces, who I adore." And then I thought, okay, yeah, actually, why am I feeling so? you know, separate from these kids. And I also thought of it more of what would I like to hear at their age? Mm. You know, the whole... I didn't have any confidence when I was a kid. And my thing is really boosting their confidence and telling them, you know, often what you don't see is me telling them like, okay, stand up straight, shoulders back, head high. Now you're going to talk to me. Great. (laughs) We do that. That gets edited out. And then they talk, you know, rather than like... Because I used to do that all the time and pull my sleeves down lots and sort of mutter and chew things and... You know, we do yeah. a lot of that, actually. Yeah. I really care about them, genuinely. That's so lovely. And but that must make it harder to be critical. It is so hard. Yeah. <laughs> it's really hard, especially because you have the break times where you're hanging out and playing and being silly and shouting, running around, and then you go on camera and it's like, you know, this maybe wasn't that good this time. It's hard. Because oh, there must horrible. be some tears and upset. There's lots of tears. I bet. Yeah. That must be very, very hard. How, um, over what period of time do you film it how's that how's that work um over a summer holiday oh okay that makes sense yes yeah. it's intense yeah i bet it's it intense is. for them because yeah. it's long days yeah but yeah, you, know, you can see i say you know they're taking it seriously but you can see how much they really are enjoying doing it as well yeah. and it seems um really believable that the kids are kind of rooting for each other yeah. In a way, it doesn't feel, obviously it's a competition, but it doesn't feel as competitive as maybe the adult version does. Because sometimes I think on adults, Bake Off or indeed any of those kind of shows, everyone's like, oh, yes. And you think, oh, yeah, really? But with the kids, yeah. it seems like a shared experience. Yeah. And they're, they're all mates behind the scenes. You know, they're all hanging out in the evening in the hotel rooms. They're, they're saying things like, hey, tonight we're watching this movie and we're going to do this. And when one of them leaves, they have little parties and they sing songs and they're genuinely mates. Yeah. And I think it really does encourage kids to get into cooking. And yeah. I think more than just baking, you know, for the kids who watch it, not just the ones who are taking part, mm. that I don't think, you know, from my experience, you know, friends who have kids or as I say, you know, my lovely niece, um, that it's just then, okay, I only want to bake amazing cakes. You feel it's building uh, an interest in the kitchen, yeah. an interest in food that's beyond that, which has got to be brilliant. Yeah. And I, I mean, I was so impressed with them in general, but this year in particular, I was so impressed with a lot of them knowing all these ingredients and things that I had no clue about. And flavour combinations. Yes. <laughs> Genuinely delicious. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but like really, you know, innovative stuff or things which you wouldn't necessarily think of as being child you yeah. know, flavour combos. Yeah. I had some great food this year. <laughs> <laughs> um, it must be emotional 
doing it as well. I mean, I got emotional watching yeah. the final, but it must be emotional doing it. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. So you do it gorgeously. Um, last mention of my niece, Katie. She has a question for you. Okay. Um, she had two questions, but one I'm not going to ask on air. <laughs> uh, have you ever made a wedding cake? I have. I've made a few wedding cakes, ah, okay. multiple wedding cakes. Okay. Um, I find them stressful and <laughs> annoying. And a lot I of pressure. told all my friends that they can never ask me for a wedding cake. I, I said to them all at the beginning of my early days, I'll do all of your wedding cakes. I've done like three or four and now I refuse. Why have you drawn a line under wedding cakes? They're stressful. And then you okay. don't get to enjoy the wedding because you're sitting there looking at the cake that might be towering a little bit because it's getting late in the evening or you're worrying about, you know, is it still going to taste good and everyone's going to know that I made that cake and it's too stressful. It is stressful. But I did a lot of meringue um, towers for weddings at St. John and I used to love doing those. I'll do those for anybody. Okay. You make like lots of uh, big tiers of meringue and then you stack them with seasonal fruit and cream and then you give um, the bride and groom a jug of sauce and oh. they pour it over each and it's very cute. That is gorgeous. I would do that for anybody. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Nice. Yeah. Um, anyone who follows you on Instagram, which I highly recommend yeah. everyone to do because it is another place of absolute rav joy and deliciousness, um, knows how important your family yeah. is to you and your, your grandmother in particular. Yeah, I adore her. And I feel sometimes a bit sad about when I was a teenager, maybe I dismissed her quite a lot. You know, you just don't really think of your grandparents as being that interesting. Or and, your parents even. You know. Yeah. And honestly, in the last couple of years, I've just done a complete 180. And now I see, you know, I try to see them every Sunday and hang out with them. And I call my mum like nearly every day. But how lovely, Rav, <laughs> that you've actually, you, that you've done that. Because a lot of people don't have those kind of feelings until it's too late. Yeah. You know, but how great to kind of go, do you know what? I need to sort this out and I want to sort this out and yeah. you know, invest a bit more. Yeah. I have that. a deep respect for my grandmother and my mum and my family because I think without their huge sacrifice in life and struggles I would not get the luxury of being a pastry chef and I often like wake up and think god I'm so grateful that I'm a pastry chef I get to be a pastry chef whereas my parents had to like work really hard to get yeah. what they have and it's only because of that that I get and I was a brat for a while you know <laughs> so I'm always like oh I'm grateful <laughs> um, but, but your, your, your grandmother seems to enjoy the Instagram social media star yeah, life she, she's got absolutely no idea about it oh okay like, she doesn't speak any English or really understand English but sometimes one of her friends will call her up and say my daughter showed me a picture of you on the internet and she'll just laugh and think it's ridiculous but she doesn't really understand but she came to my book launch and she got treated like a celeb and she said it was one of the best days of her life oh and I, I, I mean I bet proud doesn't even become <laughs> close to how they feel about you I don't know about proud though because my parents don't believe in much praise so okay. I don't hear a but lot deep of down like, you know. maybe maybe I could always do better and I could always be married <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Um, so you're on the note of could always do better, what's yeah. next? Multiple things. Okay. But... Anything you can talk about? Uh, I think just like a few projects here and there. Okay. Obviously, I have my online cookery school, which is all about um, making cook cooking and baking a lot more accessible. And with the online cookery school, it's like live. So I often talk to oh, students. Nice. And with every beginner's course we sell, we give one back to a kid in the school. So oh, I've got some nice. more school visits coming up. Obviously. And you say in the book that you're, um, I'm going to say it wrong, but your method of teaching isn't so much sort of telling, it's more cheerleading. Yes, which always cheerleading. And, I, you know, don't beat yourself up for making a mistake. Be grateful for the mistake because you've learned a lesson. These are good life lessons. As long as you learn, then it's okay. Yeah. And... I'm obviously counter talk stuff is really growing yeah. and the tech side of that is really interesting and perhaps some more writing and yeah, nice. some more bits here and there. Yeah. I'm sure there'll just be loads, loads of everything. But also learning to balance my time a bit more. 
That's yeah, really what I'm focusing hard? on. Yeah. It's like nonstop. So I'm actually really focusing on enjoying time off without feeling guilty. That is a skill in itself, yeah. isn't it? Especially when you're a self-starter. Yeah. You know, so you weren't born into a chefing family or anything. No. You've done all this, you know, yeah. for yourself. And it's it's very hard, I think, you know, especially and as a freelancer, it's very hard to say no to stuff, actually. You know, of course. Because obviously you're used to kind of saying yes to everything and just making it work. Yeah. And, it, that, and you never know when the next opportunity is coming. So you almost feel like you need to say yes to so many things. But I'm learning to say no to quite a few things. And not take my laptop everywhere and just kind of yeah. be a bit more in the moment. Yeah. yeah. Is that the kind of advice you would give to young people starting out who want to kind of make a career, not necessarily in pastry, but in a kitchen? I would actually say work as hard as you can yeah. and really go for it. I had I was talking to a pastry chef yesterday who said, oh, you know, I'm working nearly every day and I'm doing this, but I'm really enjoying it. You know, do you think it's too much? I said, no, I did that go for it like you're at an age where you're physically more able to do a lot and if you're enjoying it and you're having fun that's going to pay off in the long run and it's all about like absorbing every experience and remembering that even if you're in a kitchen that you're, you don't always like you don't always like you're always learning something yeah as soon as you stop learning then move but just keep learning keep learning and absorbing I'm going to a cake class tonight because I <laughs> yeah a lily vanilli one because okay. I was like nice. hey I want to learn some tips from you and I think it's so important to keep learning Take all the opportunities. I don't think we can say anything else to finish the podcast <laughs> other than that. Keep learning, take the opportunities. Um, absolute joy to spend this time with you, Rav. Thank Thanks. you ever so much for joining us on Bro Talks. I hugely encourage everyone to grab Sugar I Love You. It's an absolute gorgeous book. Um, and see you again soon, I hope. Thank you. And thanks for letting me take my shoes off. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for joining us today. We'll be back with more Borough Talks soon. A reminder that Borough Market is now open seven days a week. For those who can't make it down here, you can still enjoy the best of Borough at Borough Market Online with nationwide delivery. You can head to our website for more information, subscribe to our newsletter. There are lots of recipes and features on the Borough Market traders.